let me start by uh, thanking everyone for joining us. Shana uh, Tova for our Jewish uh, uh, listeners and viewers. Absolutely. Um, for those of you that uh, that don't know uh, Dr. Lerman, I'll just do a quick introduction of his of his background. Um, a colonel in reserves, Dr. Lerman had served over 20 years in military intelligence. Uh, he also served for a while as the head of the Israel and Middle East office of the uh, of the AJC. And certainly when, when, when I came to know him several years ago, he was working as the deputy national security advisor um, for Prime Minister Netanyahu, responsible for foreign and international affairs. Um, and he is and, and he is today the vice president of one of Israel's leading security think tanks, the Jerusalem Institute for Strategy and Security. Um, we're going to do this uh, webinar in a slightly different format. I'm going to hand over to my to my colleague, uh, senior researcher, uh, uh, Sam Nerding. Thank you, Richard. Eran, um, I thought we could start by um, looking at the Middle East and kind of in a broader focus. And you were the author of one of the, of the, uh, the four camps, regional divide. Um, <laughs> you wrote that in 2016 and it's been four years. So I thought maybe we could start by you kind of explaining um, the four right. camps and how they've evolved over the last four years and where you think the kind of the balance of power now lies between them. Okay, first of all, the, the key analytical aspect here is that we are talking about ideological orientations, not simply geopolitics or even raison d'etat in the old realist sense. Um, countries have shifted from friends to enemies and, and vice versa, um, not because their places on the planet have changed or because their basic national interests have changed, but because their leadership um, and, and the people in, in high places there have chosen certain ideological orientations. Amidst the chaos, the huge disruption that is, uh, was euphemistically called the Arab Spring, I don't use that term anymore, it's not even funny. Half a million dead in Syria, tens of thousands dead in Libya, in Yemen, Iraq is torn in pieces and so on, I don't use that term. Uh, this, is a, this was a catastrophic um, set of events that tore the region apart, tore countries apart, and redefined regional politics. And the redefinition went along, um, I would say, basically four ideological camps, discounting very quickly the old socialist nationalists, or some would say about Saddam Hussein, national socialists, uh, the, old, uh, the old leadership that in the 50s, 60s, 70s shook the region, shook the world, the Nasserites, the Baathists, and so on, they have become completely irrelevant. Assad is hanging on for family and clan and, 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 and confessional group. Um, Saddam has been hanged. Uh, Nasser is a sentimental shadow in the history of Egypt. Um, Sisi is very much uh, uh, upholding what is in effectively the Sadat legacy, so they are finished. Uh, the liberals, the nice boys and girls who, who, who came from all directions into Tahrir Square on the 25th of January uh, 2011, well, um, unfortunately, they did not have what it takes to create political power to take power and hold it. The one exception to this, to some limited extent, is in Tunisia, where the liberals are in harness with the conservatives um, against the uh, uh, various radical elements uh, that, that uh, try to push 
uh, to the front here. Now, um, if I may say so, um, this leaves us with, left us with four camps. By now, I would say um, three and a quarter or less. Uh, so I'll start with the quarter. And uh, when I originally uh, used these, this taxonomy of camps, by the way, game of camps, uh, I used it, uh, you know, euphemistically, like the Game of Thrones, only it's not graced by uh, ambitious blondes and, and cuddly dragons. This is just a bloody mess, mess all over the place. But when I wrote it, um, uh, Daesh, um, as the most uh, dramatically successful offshoot of Al-Qaeda, uh, was in power in much of Syria, uh, a great part of Iraq. They overran Mosul. The Iraqi army, forgive by my expression, ran like uh, rabbits. And it, unbelievable, it looked for a while as, as if this is a contender in the power game in the region. So it, it uh, was a, a fourth camp of, uh, of some standing. By now, of course, uh, um, the man who called himself Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi has been um, uh, delivered to the fish uh, as food, uh, same way as the Americans uh, dealt with the body of bin Laden. Um, so there is no uh, place to venerate this murderous set of bastards. And um, his, his men and women have scattered some uh, on all kinds of of, uh, of uh, detention camps in Syria, in Iraq, uh, over the Turkish border. But essentially, uh, the power of uh, Daesh as a state, uh, is, uh, people call it ISIS, it's a misnomer because they went well beyond Syria and even in Iraq. But the Islamic State essentially has ceased to exist as a challenger, as a contender. They are still under the surface. There are people loyal to the vision uh, of, of uh, caliphate um, here and now. Uh, there is um, a province, they call it, in Sinai, which um, if, I don't think it's a secret anymore because it's been discussed extensively in various media in, in Fitzpatrick's book about Egypt. Israel is assisting the Egyptians um, in the uh, fight to destroy this uh, um, province of Islamic State. Um, they have still remnants here and there in Libya, they, um, and, and under the surface in places in Syria and Iraq. But this is no longer, they're no longer in contention uh, for, for dominance. So that leaves us with three. And uh, it is a very complicated game now. Uh, two are variations on Islamist, modern revolutionary Islamist totalitarianism. As you notice, I am going a very long way. You know, I, I used to have a very long title for a short guy, and I use sometimes long phrases to avoid an oversimplification. Fundamentalism is a misnomer. These people do not come from the fundamentals of Islam. They come, uh, if they were a racehorse, I would say, uh, Islamist totalitarianism is of Islam by the ideas of modern revolutionary European totalitarianism. It is a, an Isla, Islamist, not an Islamic, but an Islamist take on, uh, on fascism, on, on Bolshevism, on how to create a powerful uh, one-party state. 
And, uh, and Islamism um, has today two variations. One is mainly Shia, namely the, the, the camp led by Iran. It's not just Iran as a revolutionary state with its nuclear ambitions, which are very much at the core of our concerns. It's also their set of proxies, allies, and dependencies. Uh, Syria is a condominium of Iran and Putin's Russia. Lebanon is in the full, powerful, murderous grip of an Iranian proxy, namely Hezbollah. And we, uh, we see increasing dismay. Uh, Macron uh, yesterday was openly criticizing Hezbollah's grip on Lebanon. Many Lebanese are very angry. Uh, some have suggested that Hassan Nasrallah should be hanged uh, for his role in, in creating the, the rotten state that gave them the explosion on the 4th of, of August. But uh, that doesn't change the situation. Hezbollah still has an iron grip on Lebanon. Uh, the Iranians have half a grip on Syria. The loyalists of Iran are trying to run riot in Iraq. I have to say that uh, it is my impression, and not my impression alone, of course, that uh, Prime Minister Kazemi, Mustafa Kazemi, is actually uh, reeling out, uh, reeling back or, or, uh, Iranian power. He's, he's doing what he can to, uh, to limit, to curtail the ability of Iran to use the um, popular mobilization forces, the Hashdashabi, the militias in Iraq, uh, as Iran wishes, as Tehran wishes. And it's, a, it's an ongoing struggle. People are dying uh, in the streets of Basra and other places, murdered by Iranian militias because they are protesting their, their activities. But um, uh, at least what Kazemi is doing is, is probably taking Iraq in the right direction. And of course, there are the Houthi uh, rebels uh, in, in, in control of much of Yemen, which have, uh, they, they may come from a slightly different sect within the Shia. To those of you who are connoisseurs of Islamic history, I would say that the, the Houthis are fivers and the Iranian Shia are twelvers. Depends which was the last imam to vanish. But uh, it doesn't matter. They are by now an Iranian proxy force uh, launching missiles into Riyadh, into uh, civilian targets in Saudi Arabia, fighting the Saudis and the UAE uh, forces in, in pitched battles uh, in Yemen. Uh, this is not a war the Americans are fighting. This is for a change, a war that the Saudis and the UAE troops are actually fighting and, and dying in. And this is a war for the future of Islam, because if the Iranians through the Husid uh, can threaten Saudi control of Hejaz, namely of Mecca and Medina, the two holiest places in Islam, this would really have uh, uh, global consequences. So this is not just a tribal fight in some godforsaken mountains. So this is the Iranian camp. And if there are all, there's also an offshoot on our border not only Hezbollah in the north, but Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which Hamas uh, allows, tolerates the, the ability of Pidge, uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad in Gaza, to carry arms, to have their own rockets from time to time to provoke Israel on their own, because they are afraid that if they go after them, if they assert their uh, governance in Gaza at the expense of uh, Pidge, 
that will uh, make their Iranian friends angry and that would shut uh, their, some of their lines of supply, uh, military supply. So um, we have a network here of Iranian-led uh, groups and subversive elements and terrorist cells and, um, and, and elements which endanger uh, the stability of the region because the ultimate purpose of the Iranians is to overthrow the existing order. So that's one camp. And, and we have to take this as the ultimate priority for two reasons. One, that Iran is openly committed to our destruction. Or let's say in order to legitimize the Revo Iranian revolution, they are in the business of destroying Israel. Whether they think they can destroy us or just break our will to survive uh, is a nuance. Uh, the issue is that they are committed ideologically to see us disappear from the face of the earth. And uh, for reasons that are familiar to anyone who knows anything about modern Jewish history, we take such attitudes very seriously. Another story, also dangerous, but not at the same level, but nevertheless quite problematic, comes from the camp of, that is today led clearly uh, and, and aggressively by Tayyip Erdogan in, uh, in Turkey. In close alliance that has already emerged 10 years ago and more, I would say I can trace it back to well, with, well in the previous decade, I mean, in, in, the, in the 2000s. Uh, he, this is in close alliance with the Qataris. Qatar has made itself um, stand out. They're rich enough to do as they wish. You know, uh, Shad, among other things, uh, is a Qatari piece of uh, property. Um, but, and, and they have made a point of, of uh, um, you will forgive my rude language, but uh, I used to say that Allah has shown his sense of humor by making Qatar the shape of the finger. Um, it, it stands out and they make a point of disobeying the Saudis, of, of going their own way. Moreover, they've been penetrated by the Muslim Brotherhood. The Saudis also use the Brotherhood but they put on surgical gloves. The Gatherings used the, the Brotherhood in the fight for hegemony in the region against nationalist, uh, socialists and, and pro-Soviet elements or whoever, but they were also, let's say, drawn into the game ideologically. The family has, has taken on elements of the Muslim Brotherhood faith. And moreover, and so today in tandem with the Turks, that these two countries see themselves as the patrons of the Muslim Brotherhood in its various manifestations. This is why their relations with Egypt are so abysmal. This is why the Qataris use Al Jazeera uh, as a mouth in Arabic, forget the milquetoast English version. Uh, they use the <coughs> Al Jazeera in Arabic as a, essentially a brotherhood propaganda tool. Um, from Istanbul, exiled Egyptians and other brothers from around the region are spewing venom against the existing regimes. And um, where the Brotherhood is in control, which is in two places, more or less the dominant element in the Tripoli government, the so-called government of national accord, when you see a name like government of national accord, you know there's deep national discord 
And the government of National Accord is the, governor, the government of the Tripoli area and the northwest areas of Libya, fighting against the rebellion or the, the forces of the Libyan National Army, which is not really Libyan, it's hardly national, and it's not much of an army, but it's led by Khalifa Haftar, uh, Field Marshal Khalifa Haftar, by his own, uh, the rank he gave himself. Uh, who is Egypt's ally? And uh, well, what should I say? I would have chosen other allies, but he's ours as well in this fight. The Turks are supporting the GNA, the Government of National Accord in Tripoli. They're also supporting Hamas in Gaza. You saw 10 years ago their attempt to supply Gaza through the Mavi Marmara flotilla. And you see other uh, interventions. Uh, we saw just recently that Turkey has bestowed Turkish nationality upon the Hamas leadership, which is a way of saying to us, you kill them, you kill Turks. We are, you, have, you have a problem with us. Now, all of this would not be quite as dangerous if Erdogan was not on the kind of war path to dominate um, the region, dominate the Eastern Mediterranean, and also on a trajectory of Islamist action. We saw this with the uh, Hagia Sophia, that uh, was for many years uh, originally a church, then uh, a mosque under the Ottomans, but it was turned in the years of uh, Ataturk, of, of uh, Turkey, Turkish secularization, into a magnificent museum, uh, civilizational museum, and now it's been reclaimed uh, loudly and, and noisily and with much pomp as, uh, as a um, mosque again, and in that context, Erdogan himself and many of his acolytes were saying, well, this year, Hagia Sophia, next year, Al-Aqsa. Now, when this is the attitude, again, we have to take this seriously. Turkey is positioning itself uh, as, as another contender, serious contender for leadership. It's a member of NATO. There's no procedure in NATO statutes for throwing out a, um, a wayward uh, ally and it is a powerful country with a powerful navy, um, which is also trying. Uh, and this, these, these, these themes are interconnected to overtake, um, to, to create a, a new map of exclusive economic zones in the Eastern Mediterranean, which would swallow large chunks of the Greek EEZ, ignore the rights of uh, Greek islands, and in the process, link up with the Libyan client in a way that would choke off Israel, Egypt, and Cyprus from having an access to the European markets through a pipeline or a power line or whatever that ends up being economically worthwhile. Because we have these gas fields, these energy, large, significant energy finds in Israel, in Egypt, smaller but not insignificant in Cyprus. But if the map of the Mediterranean ends up looking like the Turks and the and their Libyan clients draw it, then we are bottled it uh, in our pound and on our end uh, of the water. So this uh, is Aran, if I can just ask, um, the Mossad chief Yossi Cohen said a couple of months ago that he thinks Turkey could actually overtake um, Iran as Israel's greatest threat. Do, do you agree with that assessment? Well, I think we have to deal with the Iranian question for, us, for one simple reason, that the Iranians have now uh, gone back uh, on a race, into a race to have the, enough fissile material for a bomb. 
So, uh, and this could mature within months. Mm -hmm. And so we are facing very dramatic events. But if the orientation of Turkey remains uh, dangerous and aggressive, uh, I would say uh, we, we need to, to put Turkey uh, much higher than we did until now on our list of, of priorities. But I would qualify this by saying that Turkey, unlike Iran, is part of the international economy. It's one of the G20. It's dependent on its economic interactions with Europe, and it is dependent also on American uh, willingness to uh, keep them within the international financial system. This is why when Trump grumbles, uh, Erdogan may uh, you know, make a show of, uh, of making a paper ball from Trump's a poorly, I mean, really poorly written uh, letter. If I was teaching English style, I would cut my wrists. But uh, he, he writes him a nasty letter. Erdogan tosses it uh, into the basket. And when everybody leaves, he brings it out, reads it carefully, and makes sure, does make sure, that Turkey does not fall uh, foul of the American economy because they could be strangled. The entire uh, trajectory of AKP as a ruling party uh, came through economic success. He took millions of people from the poor, uh, to use a Brazilian term, favelas, the Turks call it the uh, getcha conduce of uh, the uh, Turkish cities into uh, mid lower middle class, high rise apartment buildings. He gave the, uh, tur the Turkish economy a huge boost but it's faltering, and, it, and now it's it's doing it's doing much less well than it did, and um, and this does create leverage. Moreover, if the third camp, our camp, the camp of stability, um, basically comes together against both challenges, the Iranian and the Turkish challenge, this is something that neither Iran nor Turkey can ignore. And I would say that in this context, uh, we saw two seminal events uh, within a week of each other. And all attention, all uh, the, the limelight, of course, because of Trump and his shenanigans and because Netanyahu was there and it, was, and it looked like a very dramatic event, although it basically just capped uh, things that have been brewing for years. Uh, we saw the signing of the agreements with the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain. But a week later, Israel signed um, the statute of the Eastern Mediterranean Gas Forum, which is much more than a gas forum. Essentially, it's a strategic alignment to contain the Turkish challenge. And the list is very striking. That's Italy, Greece, Cyprus, Egypt, Israel, Jordan, and the Palestinian Authority. I mean, in the midst of all these rumblings about a total breakdown in relations with the Palestinians, their energy minister signs a document alongside Steinitz and the five others. So um, uh, this is because at the end of the day, on this set of issues, we have a common interest. Uh, we support the Greek-Egyptian map that was signed uh, in August. Uh, it was signed on the 6th of August. The United Arab Emirates came out in support of the Greek-Egyptian position a day later. We came out in support uh, Six days later, on the 12th, on the 13th, came the announcement of the Israeli-UAE breakthrough. Uh, these things are connected. They are related. They come from the fact that we are now in the same 
set of trenches facing both the Iranian challenge and uh, Turkish ambitions. The UAE has been training with the Greek Air Force and the Israeli Air Force in Greek airspace for a, a couple of years now. Uh, the Egyptians are also part of the, uh, of course, uh, Eastern Mediterranean equation. And interestingly enough, um, President Macron has committed France to a very firm pro-Greek, pro-Egyptian, and therefore by definition pro-Israeli uh, position on the easy uh, demarcation questions and other Turkish provocations uh, and, and uh, the Turkish intervention in Libya and so on. So we have a camp led by Iran, a camp led by Turkey, and a consolidation of the counter camp that I call the camp of stability, which basically includes five out of the six Gulf states, Jordan, Israel, Paradoxically, I would count there also the Palestinian Authority security forces, although Abbas is making noises about going over to the Turkish side of the ledger. Uh, but I'm not sure that everyone in, his clan, in, in, um, in the Palestinian leadership would be happy to see Hamas dominant, because that would be, that's what's going to happen if Turkey calls the shots. Um, Egypt is definitely part of the camp together with us. So are Greece and Cyprus. We have to stop thinking in Eastern, Middle East and start thinking Eastern Mediterranean. So is Haftar in Libya, Morocco to some extent, Tunisia. Uh, the Algerians are, uh, and, and the, the Tunisians are a bit ambivalent. And with the French sort of uh, as a Western anchor of this uh, alignment, um, I think we, we have what it takes to, to hold the line against the challenges. Much depends on where the U.S. would go. Uh, <clears throat> we see that uh, our German friends have an instinct for mediation, so they don't commit themselves to either side between uh, the they, they have a good relationship with Iran, and they are uh, trying to open up channels of communication between Turkey and Greece. Uh, but uh, France, as I said, has taken a stand. We are a bit worried when it comes to Turkey about the American position. But on Iran, this, the present administration has been solid. And even if Biden wins um, this election, which you know, is, is a, a real possibility, uh, I believe that in both cases, if he wins and if Trump wins, there will be a bid to negotiate with the Iranians, but to negotiate from a position of strength. The Iranian economy is doing catastrophically. The Tuman or the reality are on a very dramatic downward uh, spiral. Uh, supplies are short. The Chinese, well, they have signed a long-term uh, long agreement with the Iranians, but its implications are rather limited on, a, on a, right now. And uh, they are flooding the Iranian market with cheap uh, Chinese products. Which, kill, which is literally killing the, the local Iranian productive base. So I, I wouldn't see this, the Chinese riding to the rescue. The Russians can give them some arms just to annoy the Americans. There are things that the Russians do, no, knowing that they have very serious consequences. But as long as this is a finger in the American eye, um, people in Moscow simply cannot resist the temptation. 
But at the end of the day, Iran cannot be rescued by the Russian economy. The Russian economy, let us remind ourselves from time to time, is the size 4% of the size of the aggregate NATO economies. So let's remember this is a sick bear with serious diseases, a background disease. And, um, and, and so I, I think that if maximum pressure is maintained, and I would think that even Biden, much as he wants to just go back to the JCPOA, would not let go of, of effective leverages if the challenge is to bring Iran back, not to the table, but to the point in terms of their stockpiles uh, that existed two or three years ago. You need very significant leverage to force Iran to disgorge what they've been uh, uh, producing, what they've been gathering. So I, I see that Trump would certainly try to negotiate from uh, utilizing the Iranians' utter dismay uh, if he is reelected. And Biden would be uh, obliged, I believe, to use leverage in order to make that negotiation uh, uh, more successful. Because neither Obama nor Biden wanted to see Iran go uh, become a nuclear power. Everyone should understand this would be the end of the world as we know it. Because Turkey would come very quickly afterwards, Egypt possibly, the Saudis certainly, the UAE uh, may then use its recently inaugurated nuclear industry uh, to go military. Um, and with this will collapse the entire dam of the NPT that has been built uh, painstakingly since the Cuban missile crisis in 62. So uh, it's, it's really in everybody's interest, not just Israel. Aaron, you mentioned there the, um, the two different approaches from, from Trump and Biden, and I agree with you that I think they both want a, a new grand deal with, with, with Iran. If Biden is elected and he does bring the US back to the JCPOA, how does Israel navigate that? How does Netanyahu, um, does he come out and publicly denounce it like he did with the bomb in 2015? Or does he have to be a bit more cautious with Biden and, and go along with that? It's not just a question of Netanyahu because, you know, we are in the midst of major political and, and even legal uh, turmoil here. But the, uh, any, any Israeli government, uh, is bound to make it very clear that Iran should be kept away from the bomb, not for years, but in perpetuity. And this was our gripe with the, uh, the main gripe with the JCPOA were the sunset clauses that basically said uh, down the road in the middle of uh, this decade, the 2025, they, Iran would be off the hook, uh, producing as much fissile material as it, uh, as it feels like. And uh, we, all, we all know where this would lead to because, because the entire JCPOA as a document opens up on page one with a, a blatant lie that this is not a military project. But of course it is, that it's never been anything but a military project. And just in case people need evidence, we stole the entire uh, archive and brought it, brought it over. And the evidence is uh, unambiguous. 100%. This is a military project. It has not served any other purpose uh, that anyone is aware of. So it has to be stopped. And uh, we would be there, I believe, um, both in uh, whoever negotiates, Biden or Trump, 
as the out the, the the player, the country that outlines the alternative to a successful negotiation. And that alternative is military action with all its consequences. This is what the Obama administration encouraged us to say, not necessarily to do, but to say, uh, going back 10 years in 2010. And this is what uh, helped persuade countries like China to vote for the sanction system. So our role, uh, regardless of politics, our role would be to uh, remind the world that we are not going to tolerate, Israel will not tolerate Iran's, Iran's presence in our region as a military nuclear power. We have something in Israel called the Begin Doctrine, was formulated clearly, unambiguously in 1981, uh, when he uh, gave the orders for the orders for the destruction of the Iraqi uh, nuclear reactor, which would have given Saddam the bomb uh, by the late 80s, if it ha had it not been stopped. And um, there was already another uh, case of uh, implementation of the Begin Doctrine by Olmert in 2007. This is a pillar. I call it one of the seven pillars of the Israeli defense concept, alongside uh, uh, deterrence and early warning and overwhelming uh, military outcome, decisive outcome, and the capa defense capacity, technological superiority, the system of Israel's alliances in the region and beyond the region, mainly, of course, the United States, these are the, uh, let's say, the standard six, and the Begin Doctrine is the seventh pillar. We will not allow a country committed to our destruction to lay its hands on the capacity to destroy us. So that's the core of where we would come, uh, whether this leads to uh, uh, diplomatic uh, maneuvers or to uh, an overt a public dispute is very much dependent on where the American administration uh, would uh, would come. I think that Biden has made it very clear, even in the debate, that he is not a Sanderite. Uh, he is not. He doesn't think that America is at fault uh, all the time, and then the Iranians are saints. And so I think he would play hardball, and certainly Trump would. And that's what we're looking at uh, for 2021. Right. Um, I wonder if I can get your kind of opinion on, on how the Europeans have, have reacted to Trump. Um, they obviously share Washington's concerns about proliferation of Iranian arms in the region, but they've made it very clear of their opposition to the American steps to reimpose the arms embargo or the snapback, the sanctions. Have you been surprised by the EU's kind of resilience to the Trump administration's approach to Iran and, and the JCPOA? Let me be very delicate and say that European demonstrations of spinelessness come as no surprise to the average Israeli. Uh, we've seen enough of that over the years. And no, nothing would surprise us. Yeah. If there's one thing which is surprising is that the French are actually quite robust uh, in, 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 in tackling some of the Iranian challenges. But, uh, but others, you know, what can I say? Um, if, I all, if, if my only choice in life is between Germans who uh, like war and people and Germans who hate war, 
Well, I still prefer the Germans who hate war, but please let them just stand aside and let us do what we need to do to survive. Um, Britain has been busy with other things and has left re relatively uh, limited mark on the Iranian issue, in, uh, but uh, going back 10 years, it was a very significant intelligence and policy player, and it should come back as a, a significant player. France has taken a very firm position. Um, they've always uh, been very jealous of their privilege as a member of the club of five. They know that if Iran breaches it, it will become fairly uh, meaningless. Um, they've always had a grudge uh, against the Iranians and the Syrian Assad uh, regime in Syria, which is for, for raping their uh, dainty daughter in the Middle East, namely Lebanon. And, um, and so the French have been quite uh, uh, firm on some issues. But when it comes to the snapback and to sanctions, um, I, I think Europeans have let their um, visceral dislike of President Trump which in itself is not a, is so surprising. Um, the man's a brute. But uh, they have allowed their dis, dis, dismay and dislike um, get the better of them. I would say that uh, back two years ago, a bit more, um, when May or towards May 18, uh, Macron was in talks with Pompeo and, and, and basically, the French indicated that they would like uh, the JCPOA to be modified. And they would like to see the sunset clauses overturned. They would like to see the question of ballistic missiles um, put into focus and so on. Um, and it seemed for a moment as if there could be a common European uh, or, or common French-American uh, position. But then you may have noticed that the Donald doesn't do nuances. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the Macron uh, um, compromise uh, was pushed aside. And I think this sets, set the stage for what we are seeing in Europe now. Uh, but whether Europe likes it or not, we are not going to relent. Uh, uh, we, if, may, if need be, we will throw the region into the turmoil uh, that will flow from a military action if nothing else uh, would stop the Iranians in their tracks because we simply cannot allow our children and grandchildren to grow and, and live in the shadow of people with such ideas uh, having possession of the bomb. Absolutely. Um, absolutely, inshallah. Thank you very much, Aaron, and thank you everybody for attending today.